Ann Louise Gittleman here for yet one more episode of First Lady of Nutrition podcast in 2022. And I'm delighted to say we've surpassed 100,000 downloads and moving on 150,000 in the next couple of days. So today I have a wonderful guest, Kristen Kirkpatrick, who's the author of The Skinny Liver. She's been a frequent guest on Dr. Oz, is an award-winning dietitian, and is eminently qualified to discuss the health and healing of your liver in this coming year. So Kristen Kirkpatrick, why did you write a book called Skinny Liver? Do we have a problem with our livers? Uh, well, uh, so number one, we do have a problem with our livers. And my motivation for writing the book came from the second problem. And that is, there was no protocol. There was no guide. There was nothing written or put on paper in any form to help patients. And so at the Cleveland Clinic, I was getting tons of patients that were coming to me every week saying, hey, my doctor sent me here. They said my liver enzymes are off. They said I have fat in my liver. I don't know what that is, but I have to lose weight. So I really wanted to create the guide because it was missing. So this is a guide for those of us with fatty liver and how prevalent is it? Uh, very prevalent. So um, we know right now, first of all, the rates are going up. They continue to go up. We have not. And, and, but why is that? Why is that, my dear? So fatty liver, let me just define it really quickly. And that will kind of help define why it, the rates are going up. Fatty Thank liver you. is essentially looking at over, an over 10% of fat being within the liver. It's normal to for the liver to have some fat, but once you get over 10%, now you have too much fat. And what happens is we have this beautiful, amazing organ, the liver, and it does a million different jobs. But what happens is when fat starts taking over healthy cells, it can no longer do the job. So what is causing it? We know there is plenty of data. We have about five to 10 years of research now showing that obesity, poor dietary choices, are things that are fueling fatty liver. It's the same things that are fueling type two diabetes and type two diabetics, about 70% of them have a fatty liver. So we're really looking at a correlation between lifestyle um, and really impacting this organ. Now this is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So this is not caused by alcohol, but I will say in Louise that since the pandemic has occurred and we've looked at data, looking at alcohol consumption, Ooh. alcohol has now fueled an increase in fatty liver as well. I haven't even thought of that. What about sugar? Sugar is a huge component. So I think a lot of people, when they think at a really elemental form, they think, okay, if I have sugar, well, there's something that has to do with my pancreas and insulin and things are just supposed to work out the way it's supposed to. But the problem is the liver actually works. Sorry about my dogs. The liver actually works towards that sugar. <laughs> and sugar breakdown. So sugar has a lot to do with development of fatty liver and an inability to reduce it. What is the, how many people in the country have fatty liver? I mean, according to the, the promotional sheets, it's up to 30%, but I think it's more of Kristen. Can you address that? Um, what's the prevalence? About 25% of the population has fatty liver and that is diagnosed. So if you factor in the undiagnosed, which is probably a, a huge amount of people, um, you know, about a quarter of us have this. 
So this and is and let me problem. ask you, and let me ask you this, because I know quite a bit about the liver. I wrote about it before anybody knew that there was a liver. I wrote about it in 2000 in a book called Fat Flush Plan. So my question to you is, how do you know you have a fatty liver? Yeah. Um, so typically it really comes out at your primary care appointment. So our primary care physicians will always do a complete metabolic panel and a complete metabolic panel will show you what your liver enzymes are. So specifically ALT and AST are two numbers that if they are elevated indicates that you have a fatty liver. And, now, what, is, and what is elevated? In, oh. in your estimation, because you take a look at typical values and they're the values of sick people, what is typically elevated in your eyes? Um, anything, you know, some of the labs, I mean, I typically look at Cleveland Clinic labs and I can't remember the exact numbers, but as said, the minute we get over the normal reference range on a laboratory report, um, we consider that elevated and we consider that something where, okay, should we go a step further, which could be ultrasound? Ultrasound is another way to diagnose. Some, um, you know, in some cases they will do a biopsy, but very rare do you see that. It's typically the liver enzymes and then looking at other values. So if your liver enzymes are elevated and then let's say you're overweight or obese or your hemoglobin A1C, which is a three month marker of blood sugar is also elevated. They will typically make the assumption that you most likely have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and then give you some sort of protocol or send you to a dietitian to help in reversal of that. So can you have fatty liver without elevated liver enzymes? Uh, you know, it's interesting you say that. So I had a call yesterday with my contributing author, who's a hepatologist at Mayo Clinic. Um, and he says he hasn't really seen that case pop up. Um, typically, an indicator of any kind of harm to the liver or inflammation in the liver is going to be elevated by those enzymes. And, and what inflames the liver? We're talking about well, the alcohol we know, but in terms yep. of non-alcoholic fatty liver, we're talking about medication. What about vitamins, overuse of herbs? Yeah, um, there are some herbs that uh, can definitely impact it. There are some uh, environmental toxins that can impact it. Um, you know, really alcohol and the diet and the weight status are going to be the hugest components. Um, you know, just keep in mind, and obviously you, you already know this from being an expert in the same field, anything that goes through the body that the body senses as a toxin has to be dealt with by the liver. So there's a lot of toxins within our environment. There's toxins within a lot of things. And so you need that organ to kind of get rid of it. So can you be thin and trim and still have a fatty liver? Can you yeah, be you can. skinny and have a fatty liver? You can, uh, for sure. So we've looked at um, individuals that are what we would call uh, thin or normal weight, right? Um, but not metabolically healthy. A lot of times you have some genetics that come into that. Um, it's more genetics than anything else. But uh, in speaking with the physician that I've written this book with, You've seen plenty of cases where people have come in, they are thin, but their liver enzymes and other numbers are um, what I would call a little bit out of whack to suspect that they have above normal limits of fat in the liver. So in the book, you provide tools and strategies to eliminate toxins. What would be a surprising toxin that impacts the liver? I mean, are we talking about Tylenol and ibuprofen? 
Yeah, not so much Tylenol and ibuprofen. I mean, obviously we've seen, um, you know, we've seen studies in the past looking at acetaminophen, especially when it's combined with alcohol and how there could be some damage to the liver there. But um, they really don't have like the strongest studies to say that that is really prevalent and happens all the time. It's not as common. Um, but just looking at something as simple as air pollution, there was a study that came out in the past two weeks looking at air pollution. Interesting, again, interesting. Air pollution comes into the body through the skin, through the, through the mouth, through the nose, um, but liver's got to deal with it, right? Anything that comes in, that's the one organ that God gave us that is kind of there to say, okay, man, this is not what should be in our body. I got to get rid of it. I got to figure it out and get it rid, get rid of it. So um, I don't know if that would be a surprising one. I had written about some of the toxins we see in dry cleaning sometimes. So, you know, that's you surprising. No, that's very surprising. We think of yeah. these toxins as impacting the lungs, but not the liver necessarily. Right. So again, if we just break it down in the most simplest terms possible, that is the organ that's going to take a toxin out. Yeah, it might go to the lungs and it might have effect in other places, but eventually that's the organ that has to deal with it. So we always have to think about it like that. That's why alcohol can be so damaging to the liver because essentially, even though we love our glass of red wine, myself included, um, alcohol is a toxin. So the body senses it as a toxin and goes through the correct processes to get it out. So how much alcohol... I mean, you and I are taping during the holiday season. How much alcohol is okay for the liver? Are we talking about one ounce a day, two ounces? Um, well, so if we look at it in a few different perspectives, we could look at the United States Dietary Guidelines. So from the Dietary Guidelines, um, which are very evidence-based, um, women can have uh, five ounces of alcohol a day or 12 or five ounces of wine a day, 12 ounces of beer or 1.5 ounces of spirits. Of the Men hard stuff. I, I personally, hard. and I like the hard stuff. Okay. So 1.5, <laughs> right. Um, and men can have um, double that. Right now, there's some controversy when the last set of guidelines came out, whether or not the men should go down to the same recommendation as the women, right? Um, should men, you know, should we really be telling guys they can have two beers every single day? Um, we'll see. The next uh, next issue of dietary guidelines will come out soon. So we'll see if there's any changes there. But I think um, if we just look at the guidelines, there's that perspective that the problem is that's not necessarily real life. And so I don't know how many of my female patients who like to have a glass of wine every night at dinner are actually measuring that five ounce, right? Very few of them. So typically we're going over what we should have. Um, and anytime you go over, of course you run the risk that the liver could be damaged in some way. You also run the risk for an increased risk of breast cancer if you're female. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what's really important is if you are someone who has non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, then how much is okay, if any is okay. So because we have such a huge prevalence of individuals having NAFLD, um, typically just limiting it to maybe a few drinks every week for someone in the, the early stages is appropriate. Once you get to the more inflammatory stages, fibrosis and scarring, that kind of thing, um, typically we would start to look at omission of alcohol as you try and reverse fatty liver. And obviously in cirrhosis, there's no alcohol allowed. So I think um, it really kind of depends, right? Alcohol studies are a little bit conflicting. There are some studies that show that alcohol can be really beneficial, can even impact longevity. Um, and other studies that are saying, you know what, if you don't drink alcohol, starting is not the way to live longer, right? It could actually harm you. So it's very confusing for the consumer um, just how much is, is okay. 
for my patients, I typically will say, if you want to have a drink every, let's say, you know, three to four times a week and really measure that, that's probably totally appropriate. I would agree. But you know, Kristen, this is what I'm confused about. Why do you think the prevalence of NAFLD has doubled since 1988? Why has there been such an upsurge? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with um, our food industry, right? So I think about my parents, my grandparents and availability of foods, what was available to them, what they could get. Um, and it's very different. We do live in what we call a obesogenic environment. So oftentimes I will tell people, you know what, in today's day and age, if you want to get a cheeseburger and fries at 2.30 in the morning, in most places in America, you can do that. Either you find a 24-hour fast food, which again, is probably very close proximity to you, or you're going to a grocery store that's 24 hours. But we are surrounded by food. And we also have a huge increase since the 80s of hyperpalatable foods. So I think what happened in, in the 80s, Sugar was really, um, it wasn't the bad guy, it was fat, right? Fat was vilified. Fat's gonna oh, make you fat, yes. fat's bad, right? All these, all these notions about fat that we have now discovered were wrong. And so once they kind of figured that out, um, you know, really it was just a matter of looking at how the food industry has changed um, and the foods that we're eating and the availability of those foods. So it's very hard to eat healthy for a lot of my patients because they're surrounded by unhealthy choices. So I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, you know, a lot of that is factored into simply what we're eating. And of course, I'm biased. I'm a dietitian, but I, I've seen it for the past 20 years in my patients. So you're an award-winning dietitian, you're a nutrition expert at the Cleveland Clinic, very well-known, very famous. So tell me the best foods for the liver. And before we continue, I want to thank you once again, my wonderful sponsors, UnikeyHealth.com, the home of all my formulations, including BioBuilder, MagKey, and SuperGI Cleanse, as well as CS-Health.com, the home of the only official activated sulforaphane products for internal and external body and beauty care. Thank you so much, my wonderful sponsors. So the best foods for the winter, for the liver, a lot of times I like to steal from Michael Pollan, who steal. Has, who has, has written the best, uh, the best definition of food. And so <laughs> I always start high level. I tell people you need to eat more food. And Michael Pollan defines food as something that comes from nature, is fed from nature, and will eventually rot. So let's start high level, right? Let's start eating more food and less manufactured calories. And what does that look like, right? And then his second stat of advice is to eat food, mostly plants and not too much. So there's no magic one food that's gonna make your liver be like, okay, we're good now. Everything else kind of goes away. But it's really the habitual method of eating more plants, eating more color, getting more antioxidants, really kind of changing our relationship with food so that we're truly fueling our body in a way that makes sense and not just shoveling in calories of any kind that we don't really care where it comes from. It's just calories. We know that a calorie is not a calorie. So let's start with food. Then let's go down to color. And then let's look at, okay, what are some of the things that are non-negotiables? All my patients have them. For a lot of them, it's bacon. For others, it's donuts. How do we allow that into our diet so we can still have that enjoyment without <laughs> going overboard? How do we, my dear? I think it's, again, it's about that intuitive eating and, and that relationship with food. I, I often will 
tell my patients that every Sunday, me and my sons, we go and get donuts. And I love my Sunday donut. And it's the only donut I have every week. And it's probably the only added sugar I'm going to have throughout the week. So it's okay. When we start having the guilt and the shame and the I'm a bad person or I'm a failure because I had the donut, when these things uh, occur, we tend to have the entire box of donuts or the entire sleeve of cookies or pick your poison, the entire bag of potato chips. So I think we need to allow these things in, these indulgences, and not feel the shame and the guilt that often comes along with it. Agreed, agreed. What do you think of the worst foods? I mean, the worst fats, certainly they're manufactured, they're processed. Are we talking about margarine? Are we talking about coconut oil? What's your feeling about coconut oil, the essential fatty acids, olive oil, flaxseed oil? Yeah. So really, um, it depends on where the saturated saturated fat is coming from. Coconut is a plant, um, whereas red meat is going to be coming from a cow. Now, coconut oil has been found, of course, to increase HDL, which is our good cholesterol. But uh, unfortunately, it's also been found to increase the bad cholesterol as well. So um, coconut oil is fine if every once in a while you want to look at some high heat cooking, but you don't want coconut oil to be your oil of choice. You want it to be olive oil, avocado oil, etc. Some of those favorite, which is macadamia nut oil. Yeah. Macadamia nut oil is a great one too. Um, so we really want to try and limit that. And I think we do want to try and limit, um, especially red meat consumption. Um, it's not to say you can never have a cheeseburger. You can, but I don't think we should be consuming it two to three times a week. We have plenty of studies showing the, the adverse effects that can occur there. And we do have some studies showing the impact on the liver as well. So supplement wise, are you a believer in certain supplements? Are we talking about milk thistle? Are we talking about selenium, our lipoic acid? Yeah, yeah. Milk thistle is an interesting one. A lot of my patients really like it, especially if they feel that they want to improve their liver health. There's not a lot of data though that shows that it's going to do much. Um, you know, a healthier diet is actually going to go much further than milk thistle, but there's also not a lot of harm to it either. So if you look at look at liver tox, which is the government's uh, assessment of all the different herbs and medications and how they impact the liver, um, we don't have a huge impact with milk thistle. Um, I think from a supplement standpoint, I think magnesium has been very helpful for some of my patients, vitamin D, because of the fact that we simply can't get it from food, right? And we don't want to be out in the sun all day, getting the UV rays just to get some vitamin D omega-3 fatty acids. So some high quality fish oil can be very beneficial as well. And then uh, a multivitamin, you don't need it every day, but I think maybe twice a week is probably not a bad idea either. So what do you do for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? And what do you take? So when you say breakfast, lunch, and dinner, mm. um, you almost kind of define the three meals, right? A lot of my <laughs> patients are not, to, are not eating three meals a day. Um, a are lot they of intermittent them, fasting? Yeah, a lot of them are doing intermittent fasting. So they might have two, um, let's say, larger um, types of food, and then maybe something in between that's not as large, right? So it's like, so kind of, we got to look at that and instead of taking out the meals, because the meals kind of puts, puts us into this bucket of when we eat, um, we instead have to look at, okay, I'm going to eat when I am hungry and I'm going to stop eating before I'm full. That's really hard to do, but it is the key to mindful eating. So in terms of breakfast, um, I think getting healthy fat and protein and fiber, really important components for breakfast because we want that sustainability and that satiation. So 
We don't want to have breakfast and an hour later be like, wow, I'm starving again. Now I'm going to have some pretzels, right? So we want something that's really going to fuel us well first thing in the morning. Um, lunch and dinner are pretty similar, but again, getting things that are nutrient dense. Anytime we think of a meal or a snack, we need to think about how do we get bang for our nutritional buck? Um, and as I said earlier, we're going to have some foods that don't give us that bang, but those have to be really minimal and not coming into the diet very frequently. So we're, we're not going to define breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but we're going to define morning, afternoon, and evening. What do you sure. tell people to eat? Yeah. Um, you know, whole grains would be one option. I tend to go for more intact grains because with a lot of my fatty liver patients, they do a lot better on lower carb approaches. So if they're going to have grains, I want them to be intact. That means they have more fiber, more protein, less overall carbohydrates. So having like, let's say a little bit of steel cut oats, but then adding some competition for digestion, adding in some almond butter, um, adding in some nuts and seeds that creates an environment in which the body says, oh, okay, wow, I have this carbohydrate, but I have all these other things I have to take care of as well. That's competition for digestion. So that's one example. Um, I think having eggs or having egg whites, which a with a bunch of veggies is a great first thing in the morning. Get some great protein in, you start knocking out a fruit or a vegetable, that's a wonderful option. For lunches and dinners, I love salads, um, but you know, you don't have to eat kale to eat healthy. So it doesn't have to be salad. A lot of times I will do roasted vegetables or I'll do a small bowl of, um, let's say kale with some nuts and some grilled salmon, maybe some grilled chicken. So I think the key is that we're always looking at protein, healthy fats and fiber. And then if we're doing that, hopefully we're getting that color in as well. I tell my patients aim for five colors every single day, and that's where we can incorporate our plants. And the other thing I'll say, starting off the day, one of the best foods you could possibly imagine for the liver is coffee. So starting off oh, with coffee, coffee uh, mold-free organic coffee. Yeah. So starting off with coffee is a great option. And tell me why, my dear. Uh, you know, there's so many studies. There's actually probably more studies on coffee than some other foods that look at really the antioxidants in coffee. I mean, amazing. We have isn't it amazing how we've done a 360 with that? Well, I mean, it makes sense, right? Because a coffee is a bean and it's a very deeply hued bean. So just like a black bean, it makes sense that coffee is going to have some really great components. Um, there could be some benefit to caffeine as well. We've looked at studies that look at both caffeinated and decaffeinated coffees. Both of them have been found to be very beneficial to the liver. So don't you think that coffee is better than tea for the liver? There are some great studies on tea. I'm totally biased because I love my coffee, but we have more studies on coffee. I'm <laughs> good. No, because I, I prefer people to use coffee. What about coffee enemas? My favorite. Mm. You know, we didn't write about that too much in the book. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, we just, we just didn't. Uh, we Stayed away from that. Yeah, we just kind of veered away from that. We wanted people to go, um, you know, kind of more as mainstream farm as possible, more, a little bit more mainstream. Um, but I've, I've seen some good data on it. So if a patient of mine is interested, I don't stop the conversation. We'll work together on that. So you have been a regular guest on Dr. Oz. What kind of segments have you done? 
I've done a large one on the liver. Of course, that was an interesting one. I mean, I've, I've probably done, oh my gosh, probably done like 20 segments at this point. Um, looking at different, um, you know, different benefits of vitamins and minerals for the skin and the hair. That's always a very popular one. Um, I've done a lot of segments, both for Dr. Oz and today's show on the brain. We have so many studies now looking at a diet for reduced risk of dementia, and cognitive decline in Alzheimer's. So um, a lot of segments on that as well. And anything that really benefits the heart or the brain is gonna benefit your liver as well. So if you were to rewrite skinny liver, and this will be my last question, what new research would you include? I think, um, you know, as far as the new research is concerned, I think we've seen a lot more data on lower carb approaches and moderate carb approaches and the benefits of the liver. So I think that's something that we did not really touch too much of because we didn't have the data in the first go around. So I think this is something that, um, you know, definitely warrants more discussion. Any day. Any day, any time. And besides the skinny liver, is there any other book in your destiny? Oh my gosh. Um, there might be, there might be. So <laughs> stay tuned. Maybe a skinny microbiome. Right. So thank you everybody for listening to First Lady of Nutrition podcast. My guest today has been an award-winning dietitian. She's the author of Skinny Liver, Kristen Kirkpatrick. Thank you so much. I want to wish everybody a healthy, happy, and blessed 2022. Thank you so much. Shalom uvracha. don't forget to subscribe and like First Lady of Nutrition podcast. Thank you so very much.